Well, good morning. Turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews, chapter 2. While you're turning there, I'll say that uh, it's always good to be back here at Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church. Some of you are somewhat new faces to me and maybe know me because of my parents, but I grew up here and um, it is always good to be somewhere where I know people not only uh, see me as someone who can preach the word, but as someone who they know, and, and I know that many of you pray for me and, and support me uh, just in your own private times with God. I know that I'm one of the people probably on your lists to pray for, and um, so it's good to be where, um, where you know, it feels like family. And uh, Anyway, let's read together uh, Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 5, and we're going to finish the chapter. I'm reading and preaching this morning from the English Standard Version, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I, the children of God, behold, I am the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil and deliver all those who, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not to angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is trustworthy, that it is without error. Father, I pray that as we unpack this text, that you would give me wisdom, that you would fill me with your spirit, that it would be you who speaks, and you who uh, enlightens our hearts and our minds this morning, and that through the knowledge of Jesus, you would transform us into his likeness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, several years ago, I was um, I was in college and uh, at, at Boyce College in Louisville, and we had a mandatory kind of chapel service type thing every Monday night. It was around this time of the year, right after Thanksgiving or coming up to it at the end of the semester, and right before uh, Christmas time, as we are now. We're in that limbo period of now we're, we're past Thanksgiving, we're moving into the Christmas season. And the dean of the college, Denny Burke at the time, was preaching. And I don't remember the text, I don't remember any of his points. But he had one phrase in his uh, sermon that I have always remembered, and it comes back to me every holiday season. And I don't remember the larger point that he was trying to make, but he said that this is the time of year that they, meaning the world, unbelievers, they're singing our songs. And when I stopped to ponder that, and as he started talking more about it, I realized, you know, he's right. This is the one time of the year that people who never go to church, don't care anything about Jesus, maybe even are actively opposed to Jesus, will subject themselves to countless Christmas songs that are all filled with gospel truth. Every One radio station, at least in every city in, the, in America, will devote themselves to 24-7 Christmas music. And while, yes, they'll play Jingle Bells and Santa Claus is Coming to Town, they'll also play Silent Night and O Holy Night and O Come All Ye Faithful. Every department store and shopping mall you go into at this time of the year will be playing Christmas music in the background. And so at this time of the year, people who otherwise have no uh, interaction with the truth of the gospel are hearing phrases like this. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Or like this, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Yea, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning. Jesus, to thee be all glory given. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. O come, let us adore him. Those words will be ringing in people's ears all month. And it opens up an opportunity. Perhaps some of those people will stop and think, why do I listen to this music at this time of the year? What does it mean when it says he's the word of the Father now in flesh appearing? What does that mean? This, perhaps more than any other time of the year besides maybe Easter, is the time where people start asking questions who they think might know the answers. Maybe like you. They start asking, well, who is Jesus really? Why did he become a man? Why did he have to suffer? Why did he die? Did he really die? What does all that mean for me? And while they may not ask those questions exactly like that, some of the comments and concerns and veiled questions that they ask you over Christmas dinner and in the shopping line at the the mall may exactly be those questions underneath. And so what I want us to do this morning 
is look at Hebrews chapter 2 because I think it answers a lot of those basic, simple, yet so important questions about Jesus. Namely, why did Jesus become a man? Why did he suffer? And what does that mean for us now? And before we just jump into to looking through these verses, let me just set the scene for you what's happening in the book of Hebrews because we're jumping in, not quite in the middle, we're, we're just a chapter in. But he's already laid a lot of groundwork for what he's going to do in his letter. And essentially what the author of Hebrews is going to try to do throughout his whole letter is just put on display the fact that Jesus is the infinitely superior um, revelation of God that throughout all the centuries and all the prophets and all the exodus and all these things, they were all meant to just point to this one coming Messiah, Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate high priest. He is better than Moses. He's better than Abraham. He's better than every Old Testament figure that we can name. And they all have their culmination in Jesus. And what the author of Hebrews is doing in chapter 1 is he's showing that Jesus is better than angels. And he does that by showing that angels, those celestial beings, are not God. And that Jesus is, in fact, God himself. That the angels are just, are just flames, of, they're just winds, they're just, they pass through. Jesus is eternal. His throne is forever and ever. Your scepter never ceases, he says in chapter 1. In chapter 2, he takes a little bit of a detour in verses 1 through 4 kind of addresses his reader more. But then he jumps back into his argument in verse 5. And there's some debate among scholars of what exactly these verses are trying to, how they fit into his argument. But I think that, and, and some, many scholars think this as well, that he's continuing his thoughts about angels. But he has a different perspective. And I want to hopefully prove that to you uh, as a kind of a sidebar, really, in, throughout this sermon. But essentially what I think the, apostle, the, the author of Hebrews is doing here is in chapter 1 he said, Jesus is better than angels because he's God. He's eternal. He's, he's God of God. He's, he is God. But in verses 5 through 18 of chapter 2, I think he's showing that, God, that Jesus is better than angels because he became a man. And while those things may seem opposite, we know that um, Jesus becoming man is the heart of the gospel story. And so I want to hopefully show that to you as we move along and answer our questions this morning. But the first question we need to ask is, why did Jesus become a man? Why did Jesus become a man? Well, what the author of Hebrews is going to try to do is he quotes... Psalm 8. You see that there in verses 6, 7, and 8. He doesn't say it's Psalm 8, but we know from our understanding of the Bible that these verses are pulled exactly from Psalm 8. And they say, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And then the author of Hebrews goes on to explain what those verses mean. He explains that these verses have their full and final meaning in Jesus. 
He says that Jesus is the Son of Man that is referenced here in Psalm 8. That everything is put in subjection under his feet, even though right now we don't quite see that just yet. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So why did Jesus become a man? To fulfill, as one commentator put it, to fulfill his imperial destiny. Jesus was destined to be this son of man. Not just a son of man like you or I, but the son of man. The son of man that perfectly wedded the fullness of deity and the fullness of humanity. He was destined from the beginning, before the foundation of the world, to have everything put in subjection under his feet. Not only because he was there at creation and spoke the things into existence, not only because we know he upholds the universe by the word of his power, but he fulfills that imperial destiny by becoming a man. By taking up the mantle that Adam left broken. By fulfilling the purpose that Adam was always meant to fulfill, but couldn't. To to accomplish the task that time and time again Moses and Abraham and, and so forth tried to do, tried to be that ultimate prophet, tried to be that savior, but could never do it. And Jesus couldn't do that simply by sitting up on his throne in heaven. He couldn't do it from afar. It wasn't the plan. He had to become a man. He had to take on flesh and be Emmanuel, God with us. He had to display the love of the Father by coming and dwelling amongst us. So Jesus becomes a man to do what Adam couldn't do. Adam was meant to be that perfect representation of God. But he fell in the garden. Eve was deceived. Adam partook of that fruit and they believed the lie that God was somehow withholding something from them. But Jesus comes and faces all the same temptations, all the same heartache, all the same issues that Adam faced in the garden and he does it perfectly without any stumbling or even thought of failing. And by doing so, he fulfills his imperial destiny. And we're going to see that these, the answers to these questions, especially the way that the author of Hebrews works these things together, they overlap so perfectly. They overlap so perfectly because God designed salvation perfectly. So Jesus became a man, but okay, but why did Jesus have to suffer? Why did Jesus have to suffer? I think a lot of people might think, well, he's this great prophet. He's this, he, he, if, he, if he is who he says he is, the Son of God, why would he subject himself to suffering? Why would he lower himself to that point? To the point that we read about in Philippians chapter 2. That he, he, he counted his status as God as nothing to be used to his advantage but he yielded his life. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why would Jesus, the creator of the world, 
the all-powerful ruling king whose scepter never ceases to rule, why would he subject himself to suffering? Well, it ties into why he became a man, doesn't it? If he has to become a man, which he does to fulfill the purpose of God, he also has to suffer. When you stop and think about human beings, there are a few things that we can point out and say, okay, all human beings have this in common. Just a few, just a handful. But there are a lot of things that make us different from one another, even us in this room. Some of us are from right here in Cincinnati. Some of us are from Mississippi, Louisiana. Some of us are from all over this country. Some of us come from other countries in this world. We have different backgrounds. Some of us look different from each other. We all have different certain features that make us different from each other. Some of us in this room even speak a different language as their first language than the rest of us. All of us have our own cultural backgrounds, our own family histories that help make up who we are, our own traditions. We're so different and various and unique. And that's wonderful. But when you start to think about yourself, and you compare yourself to someone, let's say, in Pakistan, it's harder to find the commonalities, isn't it? You don't, you're not the same ethnic background. You don't have the same religious beliefs. You're from two totally different sides of the planet. You speak a different language. There's... Seemingly nothing about you that's the same. And again, we can obviously we can say that we're all created in the image of God. We can say that, but what else can we say that makes us the same? That makes us like this man from Pakistan. Well, one commentator said there's no language more universal than the language of tears. Everyone, no matter who you are, where you're from, what language you speak, understands sorrow. They understand what it means to suffer. They understand what it means to go through heartache. They understand that when you're struck, it hurts. They understand that if you lose a loved one, you weep. That's universal. That is one of the things that makes us human beings. And for Jesus to enter this fallen world and take on human flesh and be truly man and not know suffering, how human can he be to not understand what it means to hurt, to suffer? So Jesus has to suffer to be fully human because it's part of the human experience and it doesn't have, we're not just talking about his suffering and, the, and his passion on the cross but he suffered throughout his life he knew what it meant to stub his toe he knew what it meant to uh, perhaps be lost and, and searching for his parents as a boy wondering I hope I didn't lose them he knew what it meant just the day to day weariness of being a human being that causes pain to one degree or another. 
He knew the pain of losing a loved one as he wept at Lazarus too. In all of these things, the author of Hebrews says, in verse 10, perfected him. All of his sufferings made him perfect. Now that's, that honestly is one of those verses that you sometimes want to go, okay, time out, flag on the play, what does that mean? How can Jesus be perfected? Isn't he perfect? Isn't he Jesus? Well, certainly Jesus was perfect in his deity. He was perfect in his humanity. He was a full person. But there were, the, there were things that Jesus had to endure and go through to be made ready for his appointed time. We even mentioned it in Sunday school this morning that there are time and time again in the Gospels where the people want to kill Jesus and Jesus gets away or, or hides or whatever, and the reason is it's not my time. It's not time yet. I'm not ready. Which is not only a display of his power, but a display of the fact that Jesus knew there were certain things that he needed to go through. He had to be taken out into the wilderness for 40 days and suffer hunger and pain and be tempted by by Satan. He had to go through the various trials and tribulations of his life in order to be made perfect. To be made perfect so that he could be the perfect, faithful high priest that he was always destined to be. In in his suffering, he is perfected. He's perfected, and he can now call us brothers. Because once again, we all understand those feelings. And we all know that Jesus... Jesus now calls us brothers. He becomes a man and suffers so that he could be like us. Imagine that. The God of the universe wanting to be like us. Not just because he thought it was a good idea, but because it was necessary to carry out his purpose and plan of salvation for his people. He calls us brothers and we call him brother. And he's not ashamed of us. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I like that word destroy. It sounds final. It sounds complete, doesn't it? He destroyed the power of death. And he can't do that unless he becomes a man and unless he is perfected through his suffering. And as I alluded to, he is perfected in his suffering so that he becomes like us in every respect. Verse 17 so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God. A merciful and faithful high priest. The author of Hebrews is going to spend a couple chapters later on discussing the role of the high priest and how Jesus fulfills that in its entirety. But Jesus cannot take on the role of our advocate pleading our case before God 
without being perfected through his suffering and being like us in every way. It is by these things, these actions, that he becomes the true propitiation, the wrath-satisfying sacrifice for the sins of his people. told you I was going to try to help you see that I think he's still talking about angels in this passage. And there's not a lot of evidence for it, but I think at the very beginning of this passage he says, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. So he's continuing his argument, I think. And then in verse 16 he says, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So I take those two verses and I think the whole tone of this passage as a contrast to what he did in chapter 1. Chapter 1 is Jesus is this lofty God and here he's the lowly suffering servant. And for both reasons he's better than the angels because the angels can't be God and they can't be man either. And Jesus does both. And by being both, by being both God and man, he proves himself to be God. He proves himself to be a merciful and faithful high priest, the propitiation for the sins of the people. So why does this matter? Hopefully, you kind of know what I'm going to say here. It matters because without the humanity, the incarnation of Jesus, and his suffering, including his death, we have zero hope of salvation. The subheading in my Bible says the foundation, the founder of salvation. Jesus is the founder of our salvation, and he is that because he became a man. And because he suffered. And if without him, there is no foundation for our salvation. There is no destruction of the power of death. There is no deliverance for those of us who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Which is every one of us. Every one of us rebelled against God. Every one of us lived in fear of death because we fear what we cannot control. We fear what we cannot contain. But there is no fear of death for those in Christ Jesus because He has destroyed that power. That power is gone. It is not something we can't control. It is firmly in the control of Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So the knowledge that Jesus became a man and suffered should give us immense gratitude and confidence in Jesus. Thankfulness for sure that Jesus would take on the flesh of a man and surrender himself to suffering to fulfill his destiny, that imperial destiny to be the 
the second great Adam who would deliver us from our sin. And that he now becomes that faithful high priest, continually offering prayers and service to God, saying, covering us in all of our iniquities, continually pleading our cause before God. His blood speaks on our behalf, covers us in all of our unrighteousness, covers all that up and washes it away. And clothes us in his light, as we say. Clothes us in clothes us in his righteousness. And Jesus also becomes not just a high priest before God, but a comforter to us. See that at the very end of the passage. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Have you been tempted this week? Have you been tempted today? In whatever way it may be for you? Tempted to doubt God's goodness, to doubt God's kindness and his faithfulness? Tempted to think that you know better what the right thing to do should be? Tempted to think that Tempted to think that cutting corners and backstabbing and gossiping are the way to get ahead. Tempted to think that your gratification is the most important thing. Jesus was tempted in all those ways. Jesus was tempted in every way that we were and that we are. And he was perfect without sin. And because of that, because of that, he's able to help those of us in our time of need. He is there for us when we call out to him and ask him for his help. He is able to keep us from sinning. To keep us from falling into those temptations that can so easily entangle us. So the truth that Jesus became a man and that he suffered and that he satisfied God's wrath and takes his place as the faithful high priest, it is life or death for us. And it's also life or death for the unbelieving world around us who will be hearing bits and pieces and maybe more than that of the truth of Jesus coming, becoming a man. Yielding up his life, surrendering to the suffering of humiliation and ultimately of death. They will be hearing that. My challenge for you this morning is, number one, believe this truth yourself. Cling to it. Cling to the fact that Jesus, no matter how unbelievable it might sound, was born of a virgin, came into this world, took on human flesh, became the Son of Man. And that little baby who we will think about and sing about and rejoice in this month is the same person 
who would walk the road to Calvary and be nailed to a cross for your sins and for my sins. Cling to that Jesus. Claim him. Rest in his merciful and faithful high priesthood. Rest in the fact that all your sins, past, present, and future, are atoned for and forgiven should you call on him in repentance and faith. But I also challenge you this this month specifically to look for those opportunities to speak even a glimmer of truth into the lives of the people around you. Perhaps it's just the clerk at the store who the first Noel is playing in the background. Point them to Jesus with the lyrics of that song. Perhaps it's your co-workers and, and friends who are inquisitive, perhaps this season more than any other. Bring them to church. Tell them about Jesus. Show them that this Christmas season is, is it's magical and it's special and it's wonderful, not because of Santa Claus and presents and decorations, which are all wonderful. It's pretty. I love the lights. I love giving and getting gifts and all those things, but it's not magical because of that. It's magical and it's special because it is the time we remember Jesus coming. It's the time we celebrate his incarnation, him becoming truly Emmanuel, God with us. Point them to Jesus this holiday season. Point your family over to Christmas dinner. To the beauty of Jesus. To the beauty of his incarnation and coming. To be man. To fulfill the purpose of God from all creation. To suffer and die so that he could be like us. Call us brothers and be a comfort to us. And pay the price for our sins that they demanded. I'll close with this... um, This quote that has been, it's always kind of running through my mind. It's an Andrew Peterson song. If you don't uh, know Andrew Peterson's music, I really encourage you to to listen to it. Especially this time of the year. He has a wonderful album called Behold the Lamb. It is a kind of retelling in song form of the Christmas story. But Andrew Peterson has a song called A Fool with a Fancy Guitar. And at the end of the song, he says... If it's true that you've gathered my sin in your hand and you've cast it as far as the east from the west, if it's true that you put on the flesh of a man and you walked in my shoes through the shadow of death, if it's true that you dwell in the halls of my heart, then I'm not just a fool with a fancy guitar. I am a priest and a prince in the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you that your word again is true. We thank you that your spirit speaks through your word even in weakness. A weak man like me. And we, I pray that the truth of the gospel has shined brightly in spite of me through your word. 
that our hearts are encouraged and refreshed, that we are challenged to share the gospel with those we come in contact this holiday season. And that we would rest in the knowledge that it is true that you put on the flesh of a man and you walked in our shoes through the shadow of death. May that be our source of strength and encouragement and be the reason for our joy this Christmas season. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.